Thank you for downloading this episode of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. We're, we're deep in the heart of the fringe. It's, it's exhausting. It's, we're so tired now, we're starting to see sound. It's only day five. I know. Yeah, it's, it's so busy this year. Yeah, yeah. It feels really, really special. I'm not sure if it's because we're doing the podcast now and we're, you know, really Or because we're getting to chat to lots of people. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, meet new people and kind of see what they're doing, hear about how they've gotten into the fringe and what their plans are. But also, it just seems busier. Yeah, uh, you were asked at uh, one of the nights of your your play, Hmm. you were asked, um, okay, what are you doing now? Yeah. What are you doing next? Yeah. Yeah, within minutes of of leaving the the play. What's next? Yeah, what what are you writing next? Yeah. So I was um, no pressure there no, at no, all. No, no, no. This we should explain that the podcast that we're about to listen to now, the episode that we're about to listen to now, episode mm. nine, is the first time that we we ventured beyond our little studio. I know. I keep I keep so saying studio. Exciting. It is. It's uh, Cast Iron Theatre Towers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But we 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 weren't there for this episode. No. No, we went to the Sweet Waterfront. Yeah. Which is uh, at Jury's Inn Hotel. It's the Jury's Inn Hotel. Um, In town. Just near the town hall. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, near Moshi Moshi, who were there for the uh, launch uh, mm. last week. And in a way, it's weirdly exciting. It's our first podcast where you can hear lots of exterior noise, which you'd think would be annoying. Yeah, but it's so cool. You can just get that sense of the buzz that was there. And, you know, it was it was early on a Sunday morning and already people were there coming to watch shows yeah. towards the end of the podcast. There's loads of children arrived because they were there to see the 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 first shows of the day. Oh, it's just yeah, buzzing. Yeah, and for me personally, this was the first podcast that we were that we reached beyond that little circle of friends, strictly speaking, because we we all we knew the people previously who we chatted into the into the other podcast. Mm. The first time we chatted to a new person, and I have to admit, I was mildly nervous, but it was a blast. It was a really fun uh, chat. She was absolutely fab. So let's listen to this chat with Emily Carding, uh, talking about her show Richard III, a one-woman show, on this episode of the Cast Iron Theatre podcast. So we're recording in the foyer of the Sweet Waterfront, which is the Drury's Inn in Brighton. We've hit breakfast hour, uh, so <laughs> lots of lovely people are having lots of lovely coffee and croissants. And they look very important and interesting, uh, which is it's good. With us today for the podcast, we have Emily Carding. Hello. Hello. Good morning. How are you today? I'm okay. It's Sunday morning. Hooray. So, I've had coffee, though, so I'm good. So this is why we're jealous of you. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're operating on nothing. Um, oh, I'm sorry. So at the podcast, we uh, our main line tends to be that uh, if you live in Brighton, if you work in Brighton, if you've got just a couple of dates in Brighton, mm. we're going to be chatting to you. Uh, you're really in the third category. You've got a couple of dates in Brighton. Yeah, um, I'm on from the 17th to the 21st at the jukebox um, with Richard Third, one woman show. But I've I recently moved to St Leonard's. Um, which is an hour away, but to me feels very local to Brighton, considering yeah. that before now I was in the very middle of Dartmoor. So my nearest major town was Exeter, which was a 45-minute drive away. So, so I consider Brighton to actually be <laughs> to be pretty local. I can nip on a train and, and get here no problem. Absolutely. Um, so it's, it, your show is called Richard III, a one-woman show. It, yes. It, I mean, literally, it's not just called Richard III. How important is that? The, the, the title? Yeah. Um, 
It's interesting. It challenges people's perceptions, I think. It, that was really the director's idea. And I think that she wanted to put one woman show in the title um, rather than... A, to make sure that people knew that they weren't expecting a full-blown production sure. of Richard III. B, it's part of the marketing to say, OK, so this person's playing Richard, but you're going to be playing the other roles. Yeah. Um, that What part will you play as part of that marketing? And then the other thing is, it's very important to put women in there to show, yes, this is a woman playing this part, not saying anything else about it. And what's interesting is that the audience may come expecting something completely different. They expect there to be some big statement that we're making about it being this, this is a woman playing a part, maybe we're playing Richard as a woman or not, and it's actually not that at all. They come and then they forget that I'm a woman. Yeah. That's the point that we're making. The point that we're making about gender-blind casting is that it shouldn't have to be a point at all, that it's simply a matter of casting the best person for the job. Yes, which is often an argument made by men, mostly men, who do <laughs> not want their favourite roles being gender-flipped. They will hide behind that argument of, oh, it should just be the best actor for the job, and they tend to mean generally a white, cis, straight male. Yeah, sometimes the best actor for the job is, is not you know, the gender that you may imagine for that role, initially. Yeah. Um, I consider myself to be quite androgynous as, as an actress, particularly, um, more so perhaps than in my personal life, but um, it, it doesn't... It's not something that occurs to me that I shouldn't be able to play the male roles. I get quite flummoxed when somebody says, well, women shouldn't play Hamlet, and I'm like, really? It's such a, it seems such a strange mindset. Um... Especially when you look at the history of theatre, especially Shakespeare. So you originally had men playing the female parts. Yeah. So why shouldn't we have women now playing the male parts? Um, I mean, the first person to appear on screen playing Hamlet, for instance, was a female actor. So why is this still news? It does... We, we've made some great strides in the last couple of years about that sort of casting, but we... I think we were making those sort of strides 30 years ago and we thought that it would change and exactly. it hasn't. Exactly. Why are we still talking about this? Why aren't we just getting on with making the work? Why, why do people still need to whinge about it? There's an <laughs> article in The Telegraph recently. Did you see that? I forget. I think so. I forget who it was that wrote it, but it was it was in the Telegraph, and it was, um, oh, these, it, it was specifically it was about, about the Twelfth Night. Yeah. yeah. And it was, um, oh, all these, all these actresses taking male parts is going to wipe out the great male actor. We're no longer going to have the great, you know, the Ian McKellens and the Patrick Stewarts. We won't have them anymore. It's, oh, shut up. I, I think they might still be around. Um, yeah, I think they're going to survive quite happily somehow. Um, it reminds me, um, almost strangely, I, I'd forgotten this, even though we should be talking about it, at Cast Iron for the past couple of years, we've been doing a thing called Not Just a Companion, uh, ah. which is for International Women's Day, and that's an evening of um, speeches and monologues from stage and film that, were, that are considered to be iconically male, uh, that whole idea that, you know, uh, we are we get seduced by this idea or we we uh, people try to seduce us this idea of iconic Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart type roles mm. and it is somewhat true that for women the amount of iconic speeches iconic roles are less 
and so this was an attempt to redress that balance and so we've yeah for two years now we've had um, not just a companion which has been an evening of gender flip speeches please tell me that some of it's from Doctor Who our very first, well, that's why the title is called Not Just a Companion. I was going to, with, with that title, you have to be giving some of the Doctor's great speeches. We, to we, um, I was going to save the Doctor Who references till later, but hey. Um, <laughs> on our very first Not Just a Companion, we had an actor called Alex Kavanagh, and she did uh, Capaldi's speech in the Zygon inversion. Capaldi has such great speeches. <laughs> he does, he does. They, they're almost working out how to write for him. Mm. in the dying uh, it's such a shame that, later. I, yeah we do but it's such a shame that, that he's leaving now especially now that he's got his, Bill his first season was terrible his second season was glorious and now it's every episode is beautiful and Bill is amazing and I love it and I'm sad yes. that it's ending um, that this will probably have to be edited elsewhere for, for <laughs> I'm but sorry okay. one, I, I can't let this go one of the things that annoys me, we we won't talk about the uh, possible gender flipping of the Doctor just yet, because that's a whole mm. 40 minutes on its own. But one of the things that annoys me about the riposte to it is, why don't you just make the Romana series? Why don't you just have a spin-off series? And it very much is that sort of going, I don't want to share my toys, you can yeah, have yeah, my yeah. cheap knockoff version. And it's like the whole, uh, with the Marvel characters in the last couple of years, with Miss Marvel and um, mm-hmm. Thor. Mm of people saying no no create your own original characters and I've always thought well we've been trying or women have been trying to do that for ever and, it's, <laughs> and it, it, it ain't happening yeah so, so it's time to share the toys somewhat I know exactly the other thing that I was going to save till later but we're on this now how important would it have been to you at the age of 12 to have Holtzman <gasps> oh my god <laughs> I'm actually going to cry <laughs> Um, I did. I wept through the Ghostbusters movie. Yeah. Because Ghostbusters was... I am actually crying. Because it was... It was... You set me off now. <laughs> it was like my favourite movie and yeah. when I was a child. I mean, how old was I? That was 85, so I was 10. Yeah. And 10-year-old me was watching that movie going, Oh my God, that's me on the screen. Yeah. That is me. <laughs> Willow was sat there watching it with me. Holtzman is you. I'm like, I know, I'm a ghost. I can be a ghostbuster. And then you see little kids at conventions now, oh, girls amazing, who yeah. now feel they have permission to dress as a ghostbuster. And the guys, the majority of guys just didn't get it. They watched the movie and they went, meh. And all of the women, I, ex, with one exception, all of the women that I, I knew watched that movie and went, and women my age was like, oh my God, they made this movie just for me. Yeah. Um, That's a really important point. And I tell you why. It was because women were just being people. Yes. It took me two watchings of that to notice that I hadn't seen ankle or cleavage. They're wearing boiler suits. They're different body shapes. You know, radically different body shapes. None of them are sexualized. They're eating pizza. They're hanging out. They're doing fun stuff. They're allowed to be eccentric and wacky. Women are never allowed to be just eccentric and wacky and just people hanging out doing stuff yeah and that's why I think because the uh, the Chris Hemsworth role got a bit of criticism because of the way <laughs> that he sexualised but that's the joke it was hilarious that's the joke Willow asked me about that my daughter Willow asked me about that she's 14 and she said I don't I don't understand the Chris Hemsworth character I don't understand what he's doing why is he so stupid I'm like oh what you've got here is the dumb blonde movie trope 
but they've taken it yeah. and they've gender inverted that. So the women are allowed to be people and the male becomes this sexualized dumb object and he's completely overplaying it to show how stupid it is and she's like, oh, I get it now. He's hilarious in that role. And what's interesting is that he's not... Nobody's in love with him, but that's no. all. That's all very Preston Sturges, Daft Catherine Hepburn sort of falling over herself mm. response that we have to her. Um, that's what I always wanted to ask you when you were speaking about Ghostbusters. They've made a movie just for me. That's mm. when you and I, or when women would say that, that's a reasonably benign statement. That's about a gift. Of, it's a gift. Yeah. But there is something about sharing the toys about mm. um, because Ghostbusters is such. Ghostbusters 85 is such mm. a male film it's about male friendship it is I went back and watched I loved the original I went back and yeah. watched the original after seeing the new one yeah. and I had forgotten how incredibly sexist it is mm. and Bill Murray was like my favourite and then you watch him saying things like are you menstruating at the moment and things like that and you're like oh no well this is not okay and Murray happens to be very charming in it but yes. his, his leer his gaze which mm. I remember being a funny joke but as you get older you go okay it's yes. still funny yeah. but and he happens to be charming doing it mm. um, but it's like uh the, the scene that becomes uncomfortable and Sigourney saves mm. it is when he goes to her house and puts his he- uh, foot through the door mm. and it's like a repairman coming to fix the washing machine but asking for a date and asking where the bedroom is. Yeah. It's an odd scene now, 40, 40 years, 30 years later. It is. And then when she's possessed and she's essentially a very sexy shell, but that's not even her, he's still... He still entertains the notion of taking her up on yeah. on the offer just of her body. I mean, she is there as... It's strange that it's Sigourney yeah. Weaver, who's such an icon for aliens and, and yeah. so on, that she's there so sexualised and so objectified. Um, and then she literally becomes a dog. Yeah. So that's a problem. Yes. <laughs> I, I it's d- a shame. It's almost like feminism ruined the original for me now because I can't <laughs> watch it without seeing it through that lens. But I, I did say um, on, like, on a comment once um, when they were discussing how well Ghostbusters 2015, 2016 was doing, um, mm. I have absolute faith that it ever happens that um, the women's Ghostbusters 2 is going to be better than the man's Ghostbusters 2. Oh my God, how could it not be? <laughs> really? That was a classically terrible movie. You've got a show on. Let's talk about the show. I have show. got a show on. It's so good. Ri- you should come see yeah, it. Yeah, Richard yeah. III, a one-woman <laughs> show. Oh, there, you've already stated that it's not inherently a feminist reimagining or performance, but it occurs to me, especially as we've been talking about the inversion mm. and gender flipping and whatever, uh, and what roles are available for women, there is something quite seductive about... Um, him, the character always described himself as other, mm. of being separate, of being ignored. Mm-hmm. Am I reading too much into that? Is that relevant? Well, I think that any piece of art becomes what the the person who's experiencing it experiences it through their own yeah. uh, whatever they're bringing to it. So if, if people see that in it, and that's something that a couple of people have mentioned before, then undoubtedly it's there. That's not necessarily what we're consciously doing yeah. with it, but of course it's there. Um, but I think that it, the way in which it's feminist is that we're saying this is the goal and we've achieved it right here because we don't need to make a statement about it. It just is. And that's what feminism should be aiming for. We don't have to shout about it. No. 
and say, I am a woman playing this role, isn't that great? I'm just getting on with it and doing it. And the audience accepts it. And we're there, job done. Yeah. Let's tell the story. Um, you were speaking before we started recording about um, with the, the source text having uh, love and respect for it. Mm. Um, I guess equally there's a sense of having a healthy lack of respect for it, being able to tear it apart and yeah. come into it from your own angle. Yeah, when you, when you really study Shakespeare and you realise that, I mean, take Hamlet, for instance, this is a good example, because you have, there's the first quarto of Hamlet, that exists, the second quarto, the folio. There's some versions of Hamlet that re- you compare them, the to be or not to be speech is completely different, for yeah. instance. It's almo- it almost is, the first draft is almost along the lines of, shall I kill myself? I don't know, is that a good <laughs> idea? It, it, you've got these completely different versions. Also, when you, when you study it in great depth, you realise that some of what we have, the, the texts that we have today, may well have just been annotated actors' improvisations yes. that just became part of, the, part of the final text. And so you know that there is no holy, sanctified, must-not-touch text. That is a myth. And that liberates you from these traditional ideas of, no, well, you shouldn't mess with it. Um, have you had... Um conversations stroke arguments with people who absolutely disagree with you I haven't that's interesting I, I have I, I, I've had some very sniffy conversations to say no Shakespeare should be done this way in those costumes <laughs> which I find fascinating I, uh, there's one person that I do know and this hasn't been an argument that, that we have because he hasn't seen my work okay. um, and I, I he's, he's somebody that I know that is part of um, the Globe Theatre. So I'm not. I'm not going to say any more than that. <laughs> but he, he he does sort of. We have these marvelous uh, conversations where I, I smile and nod, and he just gripes about every artistic director the Globe has ever had, and all of the mistakes <laughs> that they've made, and how it should be just. You know, it should be just the traditional thing, and that's fine. You know, that's that's absolutely fine for people to think that. Don't come and see my show. Or do come and see it and, and give me your opinion. That's fine. That's up to you. I don't have to be liked by everyone. No. Um, that theatre is available for people who want it. Maybe less so these days because there is a tendency to try and, wow, try and make it relevant to people so that they can access it and, and connect with it. How very dare we? Um, but, you know, they can go and see something at the National or whatever if yes. they don't want to see new ideas that's that's fine that theatre's there for them this theatre is there for perhaps other people often for people who haven't seen Shakespeare before I do get people coming to the show saying perhaps beforehand they'll, they'll chat with me and say do I need to have read it do I need to know the play yeah. no absolutely not come and see it with fresh eyes and, and ears and just and just be in it and let's tell this story together um, and that's subtly indicated even in the image for your poster of mm. you being in a suit and a red tie. That immediately gives us some access that it's not going to be a traditional, dense adaptation. That's right, that's right. And also, of course, that's kind of the power dressing for the modern politician yeah. as well. We've seen Trump in that outfit. We've even seen Corbyn bless him in that outfit. Bless him for trying. Um, that, that is the sort of stereotypical politician that we see on our screens today. Yes. And my Richard gets all his, we don't have messengers coming and going, obviously, as no. you would in a traditional production, because there's just me in the audience. But I receive my messages about what battles are happening and so on, on my iPhone. Yes. And then I read those out as, as, as the show progresses. 
So it's instantly identifiable. There's no need to suspend disbelief in, in, in the world that I'm bringing people into, that I'm inviting them into. It's their world already. What, what was your first introduction to Shakespeare? Do you remember? What I do gone? remember. I saw, I think I was... I may have been introduced to, I may have been um, introduced to Shakespeare before then but the but the production that I remember was I think it was my 14th or 15th birthday and my parents took me as a birthday treat to see Macbeth at my local theatre I grew up in Staffordshire yeah my local theatre was the New Vic Theatre in Newcastle under Lyme and it's a theatre in the round oh so I saw this production of Macbeth in the round um, it wasn't big names or anything like that, but I can remember that production still. I yes. remember the wig that Lady Macbeth was wearing. She had this great long blonde wig, and she was so sexy. She was like in this red dress, and when she was saying "Come, ye spirits," she was you know, throwing herself over this altar and really going for it. And that was juicy. And I, I still remember that production very, very well. And that completely inspired me. And I was very lucky that um, my English teacher at school. She obviously loved Shakespeare and she yeah. would bring out the fun and the bawdiness of it. I remember doing Twelfth Night and uh, everybody else in my class just seemed a bit dumbfounded. But I, always, I just felt, I think, an instinctive connection with the material. And she would she'd be running around the classroom and <laughs> doing these crazy things. And well, I'm very lucky that I had that. Twelfth Night is always fascinating for me in terms because mm. I do a lot of youth theatre. Mm. And um, Shakespeare comes up um, and it's always suggested that it's um, we should do Midsummer Night's Dream because mm. you know, of the fairies. Yeah, yeah. Or Everybody Macbeth does because of you know, the witches mm-hmm. or Romeo and Juliet because you know, the kids dying. Because teen suicide, um, yeah, everybody yeah. loves that. And it, al- it always seems to me to be missing the beat. I mean, um, certainly with uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, it's a much more complicated script than if you think the fairy is going to save it for you. Um, (laughs) And for me, we did a a promenade production of Twelfth Night with a youth theatre a couple of years back. And for me, it was a a no-brainer because for me, it's about, you know, staying up too late, getting pissed with your mates Mm -hmm. and fancying people that you didn't expect to fancy. And (laughs) what is more teenage than that? That's actually a really excellent point. I think also Twelfth Night deals with bullying in an interesting way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are all very relevant themes. That's a really good point. I I don't know why that particular play isn't done more by mm. schools or youth theatres. My first introduction to Shakespeare was Macbeth as well, mm. but I didn't see it. It was studied at school, mm. and so I had the somewhat more traditional intro of having to read it dry. Mm. Um, so that's quite fascinating that you, as far as you remember, your first mm. introduction was seeing a performance. I'm pretty sure we will have done it at school before that point and done the reading it round in the classroom, and that obviously hasn't stuck in my mind in the same yeah. way. But that production of Macbeth blew me away. And it was in no means a particularly inventive production other than it was in the round. It was pretty bare bones, but it was passionate. And yeah. that, was, that was the thing. They really went for it. And that, that was what stayed with me. And you're now taking Richard III, one woman show, into schools. Yes, that's the next step of the evolution for this show. It's, it's, not, it's been all over the world now, different fringe festivals and various different venues that have, that have booked us. And that's great. And off to Slovakia in September, which would be, or October, which is interesting. And that's great to get those invitations. But the plan now with the show, and we've started doing this now, is to take it into schools um, and also run workshops based on it. And that is, is completely the opposite of how Shakespeare's normally taught. Because of the way that this play works, inviting the audience to play, and they become the other characters yeah. in, in the show, 
they are in the play they're a part of it and we do it is this feeling that we're all telling the story together and one of the pieces of feedback I had um, from a teacher at a school recently was but it was like having Richard III in the, in the room with us we yeah. never expected to have that experience so I'm yes because I'm aware that Shakespeare is so often taught in this dry way and that perhaps they don't always have the budget to take everybody to go and see a big production. No. I can take that to them. And it can be, it's such a simple show. It can be performed in a classroom, as I have done. And um, I was reading some feedback that you had, and there was a student who had said that Shakespeare wasn't really their thing. Mm. And by the end of the quote, she was saying that she wished she could have seen more of uh, Richard III. That must be quite exciting for you. And, you know, we're speaking before about your 14 year old mm-hmm. self. That must be something quite exciting to be able to go to communicate that to kids now incredibly exciting and what's really interesting about that particular comment was that 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 was the first educational gig that I'd done with this show and it was my old college and it was a brand new building but it was my old college I hadn't been back to my old hometown for many many years and the old building had gone and it's replaced by this beautiful new thing with all of this equipment and and theatres and not jealous not jealous um (laughs) But there's this glorious building. And so those kids that I was performing for, they could have been me. I didn't get to do drama at all. There was no actual drama at my school. I didn't get to do any acting until I went to A-level college. That was Newcastle Underline College. Yeah. And so it was, it, it, it was extraordinarily exciting for me to be there performing and to get and to be face to face with these kids. I'm now 42 and I, was, I said to them when I was doing the workshop, I said, wow, you guys could be the kids you could literally be the kids of friends of mine that yeah. I was at college with yeah. but you, you are me and um, yeah extraordinary very very exciting and, and I'm excited to see how that will go in in other schools the difference between you and those kids that they get a decent college building they get Doctor Who with decent production values. <laughs> <laughs> all... I had Tom Baker. That's true, that's true. Do you know what? I didn't. I'm the right, I'm, I'm same age as you, roughly. Um, mm. And a year older. Um, and I was the right age to um, watch Tom Baker in the, in, mm. the, in the arc of space, sort of arc in space uh, era. I, I, my family, my household was an ITV household. Oh, no. My first episode of Doctor Who. Go on. Was Mark of the Rani. <laughs> I continued watching. Sorry. Yeah, but you know, I stuck with it. You know. yeah, yeah, it's all good. good. And now my favourite doctor, because I'm such a, a hipster, my favourite doctor is Patrick Trafton. So. Oh, okay. That's just to be different. I, I th- no, I think I think it's not. I think everyone who wants to be a little bit cool in the Who community goes, oh no, it's Pat. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not worried about being cool. It's still Tom Baker. Oh, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yes. Um... And Willow's whispering to me across the table, Matt, Matt Smith. Oh, of course, Matt Smith. Matt Smith. Isn't he a beautiful boy? Um, uh, I adored, I didn't ever adore every single story he did, but I adored him in every single story he did. That's right. I, I think that Matt Smith suffered from very poor writing in a lot of places. But I, I love Capaldi. And I, and I think he also suffered from, um, I was just saying this with um, JD last night, I was mm. just saying recently, he seemed to suffer from his potential entire final season being squashed into a single Christmas special. Oh, yeah. No, that's true, um, actually. Which is unfortunate. That is a shame. Um, seriously. We're back <laughs> on Doctor Who again. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, what happens when geeks get together. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you have a show? Fine, fine. Let's talk about Doctor Who and Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, it's a theatre podcast. <laughs> we're, we're so going to change it very soon. 
So we should acknowledge that the, uh, the term audience participation can, for some people, be a big klaxon saying, keep away, keep away. But they're, mm. they're terrified that they get it wrong or they're terrified that they might be embarrassed. I mean, Richard III is a villain, but you're not a villain with your <laughs> That's right. Um, and I've had people come, come in quite nervous who hate audience participation, who felt very comfortable with, with the process of the show, because it's designed in such a way that people can join in to whatever, whatever level feels comfortable to them. The show can run. With, with them giving me nothing. I just address them from their yeah. seat. So long as they're wearing the name tag and everybody can see who they're meant to be. They didn't actually have to speak. Um, only a couple of them stand up and join me um, in the stage area, but because it's not really a separate stage area. And I greet people as their characters when they come in. So you're instantly in that world. And it's, it's really as though we're just telling the story together. So nobody really feels singled out. We're all seeing each other as these characters from the context of these characters. There's no words to memorise, there's, there's no speaking yeah. necessary. Um, it's a very gentle kind of participation and it's in no way humiliating at all. And if I've chosen, I'm normally pretty good at intuitively choosing. I was just going to ask this. So if I have enough people yeah. to choose from, which would be nice. Um, <laughs> but, but if I... When I choose, as people come in, what character I think might suit them. Now... Out of nearly a hundred shows, or possibly a hundred shows by this point, of once or twice I might have got it slightly wrong. And if the person that I've chosen to be Clarence, for instance, who's the first person that I get up to walk around with yeah. me a little bit, if they're really not comfortable with standing up, and they make that, they can make that quite clear through their body language. Or if I, you know, I take, I take them to lead them up, and they're like, nope, I'll just address them from where they're sat. Yes, it's fine. I had a, a lady Anne recently who was so much in her character. Um, I mean, I've had, it's always Lady Anne for some reason. She's a troublemaker. Um, <laughs> but I had one Lady Anne who, who she knew that she didn't like Richard. And so when I went to invite her to come up with me to do the scene, she was like not having any of it. Yeah. And that was actually because she, as Lady Anne, didn't want to give Richard what he wanted. So, okay, it's up to yeah. me to find how I'm going to work with that yeah. and because now I mean thankfully through the work that um, Colburn Sigfistotti the director did with me in preparation for it I'm so immersed in my character that I can deal with whatever comes up because whatever I'm dealing with as an actor Richard is dealing with as Richard so whatever the uh, whatever the audience member does yeah. that's the right choice uh, and at this exactly and so there is no way, unless you intentionally come in to balls it up, yeah. which would be a shame because that would ruin it for everybody else. But I've never had that. Um, I think because we're creating an atmosphere of trust, I invite yes. them into this space. I take them by the hand. We're all in there together. Most people's anxieties as audience members stem from they don't want to balls it up. They don't want to mess it up for me, the actor. Yeah. They don't want to mess it up for the other audience members. Well, there's no danger of that. You just do whatever you feel. And I've, I've dealt with everything from people who do not want to do anything. They just want to sit there. They won't even give me facial reactions. That can work fine. To people who really ham it up. Yes. And then I deal with that. And it's all right answers. No, there is no wrong answers. Yes. I've had a lady, Anne, once who heckled all the way through... <laughs> that did become slightly disruptive, but it was in character. Well, yeah. I just killed her off early and I dealt with it. <laughs> and then I was like, well, you're dead. You can't talk now. And bless her, she went with it. I, I once um, did a, an improv show where we had one of our performers was 
a confidence her confidence outstrips her talent okay um, and, um, <laughs> that's very diplomatic she, she joined in every single scene to a point that it was disrupting the flow of the story mm. um, because it was a film noir sort of thing I, I took the I was sort of acting but I was also one of the act um, I, I was directing mm. um, so I took the executive decision to, to kill her off Sometimes um, you just got to do that. Magnificently. Why wouldn't she? <laughs> she came back as a ghost. Ah, well, that's spoilers. Um, but Lady Anne also comes back as a ghost. <laughs> of course she does. But uh, she doesn't get to speak. No. Um, I also had a Lady Anne um, in Prague. She was a performer in some sort of saucy dating show. And she decided she was going to sit on my lap. Okay. So we did the scene like that. Yeah. Until she died, and she, she, you know, she draped herself across me. She draped herself across the floor of the stage, and it's fine because that's part of the show, and it's all very entertaining to everybody. And I'm always ready with a comeback, yeah. or Richard is anyway. I don't know whether I could think of them, but Richard takes over to the extent that yes. he's always ready with with something. So don't worry, trust trust the process. There are no wrong answers. No, excellent. Um, I on a, on a slightly different subject. Um, we spoke about Holtzman earlier. You're wearing a Wonder Woman t-shirt. I am. How nervous are you? I'm incredibly excited. I'm sure it's going to be great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I really. I'm, trailers can sometimes be misleading, but yeah. the trailers are fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I'm so excited for this movie. I, 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 there's so much good material in the trailers. I cannot believe that it's it's not going to be marvelous. It suddenly occurred to me that from about but, October onwards. The the little the costume for little girls everywhere is going to be that golden headband. It is. That, that's it now, isn't it? That, that's you know, and you can easily make that or buy one from a costume shop. There's going to be so many little girls wearing. I'm going to be wearing that. I wanted to dress as Wonder Woman, and I never ever did as a child. I still want to dress up as Wonder Woman. This is like that one thing that I've yeah Wonder Woman or She-Ra that oh, I was She-Ra, still yeah. like I still haven't done that. So I'm going to be doing that at some point. I need to get maybe a wig, but yeah. Maybe half the night I'll be Wonder Woman and half the night I'll be She-Ra. Yeah, the only reason that I'm nervous is that DC haven't had the best track record no. with movies, but honestly, I could spot that in the trailers they were going to suck. Yeah. So I think it's going to be good. I'm very excited for it, and it's soon. Yes, yes. You spoke about um, there are a few things you haven't done yet. I mean, you were talking about costume parties and whatever, but that does um, coincide neatly with another question I wanted to ask. Aside from Richard III, mm-hmm. uh, is there anything else um, on the horizon? Or is Richard III um, where we're sticking with for a while? Well, there's, there's, there's a project that's very new and it's still kind of in that delicate stage that you don't want to jinx it by talking about it okay. too much. Yeah. But um, now that I've moved to St. Leonard's, um, Hastings, I've, I've met some great people down there. There's a great deal of talent there that isn't finding expression. But the, there was a chap there um, who saw me in, in Richard III. Yeah. I did a local production in Rye. And he'd been planning a production of Hamlet for about two years. And he got the space booked and everything, but hadn't found a Hamlet yet. And um, he just basically offered me Hamlet. Ah, fantastic. And I'm now also involved in sort of the producing side of that too. Um, so it's Hamlet next for me. Excellent. Uh, which is interesting because I had written a script for a solo Hamlet with audience participation, yes. trying to push the ideas that we developed in Richard even further. Yeah. So I do hope to come back to that at some point. But at, at the moment, I'm in a production. I, I get to play with other actors. 
That I get to so actually lovely. play Hamlet um, in a play with people. Somebody else can bring your coffee for you occasionally. Maybe. Yeah. That might happen. The dream might I get happen. people to play with in rehearsal. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and that's going to be happening at St Mary in the Castle in, in November. So we sort of tentatively started some early rehearsals and then we're all going off to do other things and we'll be coming back in the summer. And that's yeah. going to be part of a very big project that we'll develop um, over the autumn and winter and then into next spring we're hoping to come up with something big yeah. um, but I don't want to talk too much about it yet but it, it could be quite exciting in Hastings so that is, that is an exciting thing to, and also to feel that you're at the birth of a new not era uh, you're at the birth of a new movement of local creativity yes um, and hopefully very much behind the steering wheel with yeah. some other very interesting very talented people so it is exciting obviously we're going to be looking at how we can get funding for that yes um, but we will make whatever we can with whatever we can get which has always been the way i've worked absolutely um we we speak often on the podcast about um where people hang out to be creative where they do their writing where they do their uh planning and stuff and we normally say, oh, where, what sort of place, a coffee shop or bar in Brighton do you hang out? Uh, mm. you know, it's like a, a local promotion sort of thing. Now, oh, I see. You, you, you may not necessarily know many places in Brighton. I don't So I guess, no. I, could, I guess I could um, couch the question and go, are there places, are there little cute little coffee bars or whatever in Hastings where we'd find you scribbling in a notebook? I've only been there three months, but I've found a couple of really nice places that I like. Um, there's Radley's, which is a, a restaurant in the Old Town yeah. in Hastings, which does it does gluten-free fish <laughs> and chips. I mean, come on. <laughs> but also, if you go upstairs and sit with a cup of tea or something, you can people watch. Oh, yes. Which is marvellous in that there was the recent Jack in the Green celebrations where everybody dresses up. The whole town really goes for it. And they managed to find us a table upstairs and I just sat watching. We were waiting for an hour before they could do food because it was manically busy and I just sat yeah. there watching all the, the different characters <laughs> of the town walk by. But other than that, I find I get ideas when I'm out in nature. I see. Um, I'm that sort. Yes. I, like, I go and sit Going on the beach. Walk, yeah. It is glorious now to be living by the sea. Oh, yes. I mean, we often, we've said this in the first podcast that there's something valuable about living in a place where you can see the horizon mm. the, the, the sense of not escape necessarily but that you're not being hemmed in 360 degrees by concrete and wall I just don't think I could no. I just don't think I could I, I've come the last two years before moving to uh, to Sussex I was very much in, in the actual geographical centre of Dartmoor yes uh, <laughs> that's a level of freedom you know it was a bit too far <laughs> Um, I was very far away from everywhere, but I do like to be able to stand and look in one direction and not necessarily see civilization. Now I'm so the sea does that for me. Now I'm imagining that in some point in the future you, you'll do a one-woman Heathcliff. <laughs> I couldn't possibly step, step into Cliff Richard's shoes. <laughs> Nobody's seen that production. <laughs> I had, oh my God, years ago, friends of mine at, at Breton put on a, a video of this and made me watch it is, is it is, extraordinarily is it, terrible and the it's so entertainingly bad oh. i cannot live without my love i cannot live without my soul that's magnificent <laughs> oh it was extraordinary i mean occasionally a vanity project works really well but <laughs> it was so bad that it was hilarious oh, i highly that's... recommend watching bits just bits there are bits i think on youtube uh, but that 
there's part of me that's really, really sort of like engaged by the idea of watching that, but it feels now that it would be a bit like the video in Ring, that if you watch it for too <laughs> it long. It will infect you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. One of the other questions we often ask is, um, is there a film at the moment or a book you're reading at the moment or another podcast that you would go, oh, you, you have to find about, out about this, you have to... Yeah. Um, I... This is almost self-promotion, but it's it's not. <laughs> when I, it, it almost is. Perhaps it is a little. Um, when I was in New York last year um, with Richard III, so somebody had seen my video online and knew that I was going to be in New York and invited me to be part of, of this audio drama that he was doing as a podcast. Yeah. And it was the weirdest script. His email was long and eccentric. And it seemed like a really crazy thing to do, but I was like, yeah. "Well, I'm gonna if I'm gonna be in New York, you know, and I can I can get there. Um, why not? It was one of these why not things." But there's a podcast called The Grey Area, and it's a sci-fi. It's very much, as you can tell from the title, perhaps a bit of a Twilight Zone yeah. type thing. Um, and there's been just a couple of episodes out. I, mine is the first episode, but it carries on with this series of strange vignettes almost the, into this world where demons are sort of coming into this world yeah. through strange means inspirational things and muses and so on and it's just a really interesting quirky podcast um, and in terms of, of TV series uh, Sense8 has a new ah, season yes. out and I am hoping to binge watch that tomorrow but Sense8 um, watch that show that is an incredible show for diversity but just original ideas, just everything about it's so progressive yeah. and, and addictive and marvellous. Uh, yeah, Netflix has given us a lot of gifts in producing series that uh, the producers know are going to be we're going to be mm. watching in a different format now. So they can do more complicated ideas. They can do ideas. They can have episodes where narratively not much happens for that episode and I think we're benefiting from the way that TV is consumed now and the yes. dramas are going to be produced Netflix are doing some incredible stuff um, and books wise everybody go and read The Power by Naomi Alderman have you, uh, have you read this? no I know, her, I know of her but I haven't read this book it's, it's quite new I think it was recently um, it was on some awards list or something yeah. um, but it it's really interesting, very fast-paced read about what would happen to the world if women, or young girls actually, it's teenage girls to begin with, and then they teach it to older women, gain the power to basically shoot lightning through their hands. Which sounds really strange, but it looks at the interplay of power between male and female in a really interesting and very, very disturbing way. The first thing that happens is that a teenage girl who's being abused by her father kills him. Yes. This is what would happen. Well, these, these very, very oppressed um, women in various regimes suddenly are able to fight back in this new way. And then what, what's the men's reaction to that and uh, what happens to the world? It's, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but it's a great read. Very well written. Very that does sound exciting. There's, uh, I mean, that is a, clearly like a, a reverse Handmaid's Tale, but also what's quite yeah. engaging about that, there's something very alluring about what happens when young girls are taught how to, 
which suggests they already have the power. It's innate within them. It, it's this, an evolutionary thing. So the, the teenage girls start to evolve this power and then they can teach it to the older women. So yeah. there's some... It's like there's an organ in the female body that's been... It, it needs to be awakened. Yes. And then they, then they also have this power. And I sort of read it... I think I read it str- either just after reading The Handmaid's Tale yeah. or just before. I read these two very much at the same time recently and it was... Margaret Atwood actually writes a little bit about the power on the cover of The Power. You have a quote oh, yes. from Margaret Atwood. They are two related beasts. So I recommend reading both of those at the moment. Excellent. Um, Messes with your head. I can imagine. Um, it's not now, now so much lovely people having croissants. It's lovely families. Yes. Uh, I, I didn't look up. I've just looked up and noticed that we are now surrounded by lots of children. I think we're about to hit the first show of the day um, at Sweet Waterfront and the first couple of shows are family or kids shows. Oh, okay, okay. I, I don't right. think they're coming to see a dystopian drama uh, based by Margaret Atwood. I mean, well, they maybe they st- should. Start young. It, would, it would prepare them for the world they're going to be growing up yeah, in. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that, we can't possibly end the podcast on that. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, I work with a lot it's of... true, though. I work with a lot of kids uh, of uh, about Emily's age. Um, Willow's age, sorry. Emily, Everybody Emily, does uh, that. Even my close friends yeah, do yeah. that. I do not know why that is. That, I, I don't know what that is. Um, but, yeah... There are some depressed kids out there, not for the traditional teenage depressions. Like they're aware of the leaders that we have or the leaders that we don't have. Mm. That's going to get cut. Um, <laughs> oh yes, yeah, so the last question I wanted to ask you before we begin to wind up, really, is everyone. Most people have had this idea for an invention, an idea for a book, or an idea for a film mm. that they didn't really do anything with. Then some somebody else got to it at first and made millions or become famous. <laughs> is that true for you? Did you ever come up with? Um, I would love to be able to say that, like, oh, I completely had the idea for the Matrix. Ah, yes. I didn't, not necessarily. I did. I did have an idea as a, as a student that I would like to do a show from Ophelia's perspective, all about oh, yes. Ophelia and telling her story with letters and all of this. And Stephen Burkhoff, <laughs> just after I had the idea, did exactly exactly what I've been thinking of but I think it's an interesting question in terms of ownership of ideas yeah Uh, I can't remember who originally said it maybe they stole this idea from (laughs) me as well is that we don't own our ideas creative people are like an antennae and ideas are out there floating around and if we're lucky enough to be an effective antennae we'll receive these ideas and then we have to get them out there absolutely as quickly as possible before anybody else and I do have a couple of those things where actually I was lucky enough to get the idea out before anybody else, um, including a, a transparent tarot deck, which <laughs> is designed to be read in layers. And when oh, I wow. had that idea, yeah. and nobody else had done that before, and I did actually manage to get that out before anyone else. So that's actually my success story. I had my idea and I made it happen because before you, anyone. You got, uh, you got the idea done and you did the work. I before. did it. That's it. You've got to do the work. Absolutely. It's no point sitting around having great ideas and thinking, well, maybe one day I will. Because I tell you, if you do not make that happen, some other person will get that idea. The ideas want to be manifested. Yes. And if you don't manifest it, the idea is going to go somewhere else and find another antennae. Yes. Um, about 30 years ago-ish, um, your favourite doctor oh, yes. uh, said good luck to the new doctor, whoever he or she uh, might be. Um 
bless Tom Baker. Is it, is it going to happen? Well, obviously they're going to discover me and cast me. <laughs> well, leave that's, him with this. that's what's going to happen. Yeah. yeah, that's going to happen. I would really like it too. I think they're too scared. I think I, I saw something saying that they want to cast another pretty boy, David Tennant, because yeah. that's when they had the most viewing figures. And at the end of the day, that's what it's going to come down to, viewing figures. Will we ever get a female doctor? I'd like to think possibly the next one won't be and then there'll be such an outcry of oh come on this time it was going to happen that yeah. eventually they're going to have to cave to that I'm an optimist let's say yes it yes, will okay. happen yes it will happen and they will come and see my show and they will think yes you you are the next doctor and that's how it will happen so anybody who's on the train from Cardiff now yeah uh, anybody uh, listening uh, in Cardiff um, come up to the Brighton Fringe we need to remind them what those dates are that would be May the 17th to the 21st at 4pm at the Jukebox on Waterloo Street in Brighton. We, we should explain, we have said this before on the podcast, that the Jukebox is at the back of a pub that uh, until very recently was called the Iron Duke. Yes. It's now called the Southern Bell. It is called so the Southern people Bell. People shouldn't get panicked that they've got lost. Yeah. On another podcast recently, I said something like, oh, it's called something like, I don't know what it's called, the Sweet Susanna, is it? No, it's called the Southern Bell now. So Andy Pryor, Andy Pryor, if you're listening, who is the casting chap for Doctor Who. So that's where it is. I'll see you there. <laughs> it's a date. Uh, thank you, Emily Carding. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. This has been the Cast Iron Theatre podcast, presented by me, Andrew Allen, edited by Michelle Duncan. Music is Chapstick by Everett Harmond. Find us on Twitter at cast underscore iron acts. On Facebook with ironclad cast iron, all one word. And our website is castironbrighton.weebly.com. Subscribe to us and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I did have another really elegant question about that. You did, it was was great. it, it, it It was informative, it was witty, and it gave you an opportunity to sort of my Wax answers lyrical. were amazing as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Um. <laughs> well, we've got, we've got Willow hiccuping all the way through. Yeah. Oh, poor Willow. We, I like it. We, 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 we should acknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> it's been good. It is. It's, it's, it's cast out. It is. It's, um, it is. It's, what's the name of our company? Cast, cast Iron. Cast Iron. Okay. <laughs> Because yeah. it's not like we're short of time or energy, energy or, anything. or anything. We can just do this intro. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even checked the sound levels yet. Okay, just talk. Okay. Anytime. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Is it distracting because I'm just staring at yeah, you? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs>